Welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance sports training. Rob, did I get that? Nope. I think that you're starting it off with not so fast talk by flubbing it every time. But next week, Trevor, maybe you'll get it right. Well, we edit that, so they don't need to know that was my first try. Well, maybe we'll edit this, or maybe we won't. Listeners, if you hear this, then you know how truthful we are. And if you don't hear it, you know we're a bunch of liars. But they'll never know. Yeah, but that's not your real voice, Rob. It's not my real that's voice? That's your intro. Welcome to Fast Talk, <laughs> It is voice. funny. My intro read voice is different than my real life voice, I think. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Is it Absolutely. better or is it worse? It's just different. It's better for the intro to Fast Talk, but if you talk to me like that, hey, Grant. Yeah. Hey, Grant. I'm glad to be sitting here with you getting beers. <laughs> It's a lovely day outside, isn't it? How have your kids been? Fantastic. Thank you for asking. Hey, it must be a potluck because, you know. Because that's how we started. Grant, you are joining us from Montana this time around. You're sitting on a bed, right? The abyss. He's joining us from the abyss. I'm sitting on a chair, but my setup is on a bed. So the microphone is on a bed and the camera's on a bed. And it looks really good. Yeah. I think that's pretty professional. It's like, it's what damping all the, the sounds, right? There's no anything that's getting, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, nice and clean signal. It's like being in an echo chamber. Yeah. I mean, the your opposite video, of an echo chamber. Your video looks like a potato right now. So, you know, internet quality is <laughs> not the greatest, but. No, it is Montana. <laughs> the smoke signals are traveling relatively quickly. I'm, I'm surprised, actually. <laughs> You're lucky I'm not using those to kind of translate my smoke signals. Yeah, right. We are off to a productive start here. Tis the season for knee pain. As the summer sunshine inspires us to ramp up our riding mileage, our knees don't always keep up. If you've got knee pain, we have the solution for you. Fast Talk Labs members can follow our knee health pathway featuring our Director of Sports Medicine, Dr. Andy Pruitt. See the introduction to the Knee Health Pathway at FastTalkLabs.com. I have a question. I don't think I know either of your questions in true potluck form. Well, who, who wants to go first? Grant always goes first. So Grant, you want to ask us a question? I'd love to ask you a question. So here's my question. And what I'm, I'm curious about is what was a defining moment in your guys' professional career. So Trevor as a coach or Rob as a sports scientist and a coach, and I'm not looking for that. Oh, I made a difference in this person's life and it really did it. But what was that moment that you realized that you wanted to go all in on this? Like, this is what I want to do. This is my calling, so to speak. And if you can think of it, what was that moment and why did it influence you that way? Hmm. Are you sure you don't want us eating spicy hot wings when you ask us this question? <laughs> I know this is deep, right? This is deep. It's deep. I think that I've had more than one defining moment in my life. The first one that comes to mind, and Grant, I don't know that it is completely in line with the question that you're asking, but I'm going to go with it as a defining moment anyway. And that was, I've, I've shared this story before. If anybody listened to our Paul Larson uh, episode, and we were fortunate both to do an episode about the research that Paul Larson did and an episode with Paul Larson actually on it. There was one day when I was at CU Sports Medicine, it was during the Training Peaks, I don't know, Endurance Coaching Summit, I believe they called it. And we were doing kind of like a like a tour of the CU Sports Medicine facility because that's where the uh, conference was held. Anyway, I was giving uh, kind of like a, a practical overview of lab and uh, how lactate information and, and subsequently uh, carbohydrate and fat oxidation rates, how we can essentially get a better understanding about endurance athletes and, and then make some recommendations out of that. And uh, Inigo San Milan um, was the lab director at the time. And you know, here I am, you know, groups of people are coming through the lab, you know, eight groups a day. And uh, in one of the groups, there was a guy that had questions and he didn't have normal questions. He had, he knows what he's talking about questions. And I had like, am I defending a dissertation sort of, you know, toe to toe with him? And it turned out it was Paul Larson, you know, super, super nice guy. But <laughs> at times, you know, at times he had me on the ropes. And that was a defining moment for me because 
you know, I really had to think about my answers. I wasn't giving the same sort of structured answers that you give to all the other common questions. And, and it was a bit of a test and a bit of a challenge. And it felt good to be able to think outside the box a little bit based on, on what he was saying. And so for me, that was really defining because I think oftentimes as a coach and as a physiologist, you're working with very similar people over time. The athletes have the same questions. The medical patients have the same issues. And you ultimately end up falling into a rut, for lack of a better term, where it feels like you're oftentimes just reciting the same information. Uh, so this was defining for me in that it was a big, big challenge, man. He was asking some bangers without question. So, you know, Trevor, you want to throw one in there and then maybe I'll try to think of one that that is more in line with Grant's uh, original question. Well, Grant, let me ask you a question. Are you talking about how we got into coaching specifically or was there big life-changing moments in general? No, I think more of the mindset of like everybody gets into coaching for interesting reasons. And I think so many of us got thrust into coaching because we didn't know what else to do. And and that's not how I got into coaching, but it's it's almost I think people almost fall bass backwards into coaching for lack of a better way to put it. But I'm more like along the way, what happened along the way that really maybe influenced how you coach or made you make a shift in your coaching or just in philosophy along the way. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's, that's a little different. I mean, to go to the question of what got me into coaching, I think we used this on the podcast a few episodes ago, but, uh, the, there is a, a quote, the life is what happens while you're making plans. That's pretty much how I got into coaching. It was kind of a <laughs> opportunities jumped up and I kind of went, hey, let's see what happens with this. I'll do it for a few months. And it just kind of kept going that way. So that's how I ended up as a coach. But yeah, big moment in my coaching. I started, you know, I've said this before on the show. I started at the National Center up in British Columbia almost by accident, working with all, all the development athletes. So the start of my coaching was, was really development. And I didn't work with any other type of athlete for several years. And I remember the first time working with a, a couple master's athletes, I nearly killed them. Like, I kind of want to go back and find them and go, here's all your money back. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because I tried to coach them like pros. Not understanding there were different ways. They and, were pros in their own mind, Trevor. It's fine. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that was very life-changing because, you know, everybody talks about you need to personalize, you need to know the athlete. And I thought I did. But I, I was working in very small nuances with a very particular type of athlete. And that was my experience of, oh, no, there, there's big differences. And having to make that shift and have discovered since then, it is very hard, in my opinion, to be a really good coach with all types of athletes. Because I have noticed now that I mostly work with master's athletes, you take a different approach. You take a different mindset. When they're struggling and life is getting in the way and work is busy and all that sort of stuff, you go, hey, take a break take it easy. When you got somebody who's trying to be pro and they go, life gets in the way, you go, suck it up, sunshine, get out there and do your ride. <laughs> so yeah, it is definitely hard to be in a place where you have to be able to make that mental shift over and over again between groups of athletes, because you're right. It is such a different just protocol to work with different people at different times in their lives with different priorities. Yeah, Grant, if you talk about, was there a moment, how did you know that this is what you wanted to do? For me, it's, you know, always trying to find value in things. And there was one particular athlete that I worked with in the lab at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine. And I won't go into depth kind of on on what was happening with this athlete, but but basically we'll just say that there was a, a, a dysregulation between perception and metabolism. And uh, this athlete was passing out regularly during races and during training. And his parents visited us. He, his family, I should say, visited us from California to try to figure out what the heck was going on with this individual. And we were able through, you know, various physical metabolic testing, lab testing, we were able to 
get a sense of, I don't know if we had a true diagnosis, right? But we were able to get a good sense of what was going on inside of this person. And Adam St. Pierre, uh, who I think listeners of the show is probably familiar with, he's been on on the show a, a couple times and he's a, a dear friend, ultimately ended up coaching this individual who went on to be a, a fairly successful cross-country and endurance runner. And I don't think that he ever had an episode again after working with us. And those moments are the ones that really truly bring value, in my opinion, to the things that I can do with individuals. You know, looking back at that, it's the summation of those sort of individual times that come together that lead me, I think, down this road of the value and the worth and the happiness that I can bring into uh, sort of sports science here. Yeah, I I think that one is terribly relevant. I mean, for me, I guess what got me going on this question was years ago when I was coaching swimming and then I had gone through a little bit of this along the way. I got thrust into like, I want to say big time. This wasn't big time coaching, but it wasn't summer league swimming anymore. I was coaching national caliber athletes all of a sudden and expected to try to keep it up. And I pulled it off and made that work and moved on. But what really triggered it was there was this moment like 2010, somewhere in that area when a woman came to me who was working her way up the ranks in open water swimming. And she wanted to move home to Boulder. And she had swum for a rival team when she was young. And she somebody suggested she work with me. And she walked in my door and said, I'm trying to make the Olympics in open water. And I had never coached open water before. Mm-hmm. But think of it this way. The, the highest, highest distance I had coached in the pool was the mile. And this was 10K. And she later competed in the 25K World Championships. So it's a totally different feeling. And at the time, I was scared to death. And on the outside, I, I said, oh, yeah, I can do that. Absolutely. Let's, let's help you out. Let's figure it out. And what really shifted for me in that moment was this feeling that if I really put the time and effort into it, I listened to the athlete, I could coach anything with the athlete as a partner instead of as a subordinate, so to speak, right? And it started to change my approach to coaching from purely here's the physical training to here's the support structure, here's the mental performance pieces, here's the all those other pieces of the puzzle that come in that, that contribute to coaching holistically. That's really what trying to change the direction of what I was doing. And it led to me going to grad school, led to me getting my CMPC, led to so many of those other pieces of the puzzle for me as a coach. So that was that kind of, I don't know if it was defining, but it was really this huge shift for me in coaching that led me to go, oh, wow, there's so much more to this than I thought there was. But it took this huge risk. That, that I had to be put in a really uncomfortable spot in order to try to do it. You know, Grant, it's interesting because I remember this athlete of yours and at the time, I don't think that I would have known or realized that it was this monumentous shift for you, both in terms of athlete, but then also in terms of, you know, your coaching process and and how you view yourself and, and how it solidified aspects of your coaching style to this day. And it's just interesting to look at that from an outward perspective, an outward point of view, because gosh, this was what, 10, 15 years ago, maybe in that time frame. Is it 15? Yeah, 15. exactly. God damn, we've known each other for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we knew each years other ago, a lot longer. God, 15 years ago just feels like it was forever ago. But that's but that is the culmination of life, right? That's who makes us who we are and why yeah. we're better today than we were 15 years ago. Grant, I also think you touched on a really important shift that you're seeing in coaching. You talked about realizing that coaching is a partnership. I do think that old school model of coaching of do as I say and shut up, it might still exist at the high school level, but I think with experienced higher level, good coaches, you're you're seeing more and more of that shift of no, this is a partnership. This is a conversation. Well, I think we're starting to see it too in this. I mean, last week, two major college coaches at Northwestern were both let go. And both of those situations were built around uh, a culture of bullying or a culture of um, hazing or these things that really are this top-down 
aspect of coaching, right? That was, as you alluded to, Trevor, the the norm for so many years. Yep. And it's we're starting to see that change at least a little bit. Yeah, I'm interested, Grant, because you know we're local to Boulder, and everybody is very excited about the the CU Boulder, the Buffs football team this year because Deion Sanders, Coach Prime, has come in to coach the Buffaloes. And uh, I know I'm excited to see how they do, uh, even though I'm not the world's biggest fan of football, but he has a style that is very old school. And and maybe that works in football. Maybe that works with those individuals. Maybe that works for him, or maybe it doesn't. But in all of the conversations that we have, it feels like coaching is going in a very different direction than the style that Coach Prime has, which is a very top-down, my way or the highway you know, I know what I'm doing and, and I'm, you know, sort of the gift to see you to turn this program around. And part of me wants him to be extremely successful, right? I want to see him turn this football program around. Part of me doesn't want to see that be at the expense of athletes and, and psyche. And I think that we see coaches like this where the people that can manage the situation, they rise to the top and everyone else gets spit out. And if you got enough people, enough rise to the top in it, and then, then there's some success there. But for me, this is like one giant experiment, observational experiment that I'm watching from the outside. Interestingly, coaching in cycling and a lot of these endurance sports is actually different from coaching in these more team-based sports. I do think the closer equivalent to a football team coach is the team manager, like at the Tour de France, is sitting in the in the car at the back, not the individual coaches for the athletes. And I still think even there, like you, you listen to the radio at the Tour de France, team manager is a little more of that, uh, I've got to have a team all working in the same direction. So it's, it's do as I say, I'm going to tell you what to do and you got to follow it. I do think one thing that's unique about Prime and... Yes, I think it is a bit of an old school model, but what he is building wherever he goes is a true and absolute belief in the culture and the program that he's created by his players. Yeah. So what we're really seeing right now is a desire by him to have his guys in there. Mm -hmm. And those people that really believe in him and believe in the program and believe in the approach. And so there is that element of old school but there also is that big element of new school, whereas the culture is defining the how things happen. And when you have the right culture, you have the right environment, then people are willingly going into these things. They know what they're getting into. They know what they want to do, and they're going to go and they're going to participate in that culture. And the coach can direct that culture, but it's really up to the athletes of whether they buy into that culture. And I think that's why it's so important for him to have just his people in there because it's not going to work with anybody else. For both beginners and veterans, polarized training is the best way to get and stay fast year after year. And this is the perfect time of year to be thinking about how polarized training can help you. In our new guide featuring Dr. Steven Seiler, explore fascinating and helpful topics like how polarized training is different from sweet spot, how to bust out of performance plateaus, how to polarize all season, how to build durability, and how to time your high-intensity work. With the complete guide from Fast Talk Labs, you'll have everything you need to polarize your training like a pro and unlock your elite. Learn more at FastTalkLabs.com. Okay, well, should I throw my question at you guys? Do it. This is one that we have discussed on the show before, but I want to bring it up again because I like to beat dead horses. <laughs> and I also want to finally put this horse in the ground and move on, potentially. So you're doing it in a potluck when we're not prepared? Yes. Oh, God. Yes, we are. <laughs> and it's going to be fun. So this is something I have been fascinated by. I discovered a long time ago in Grant, I've sure you've seen this both in my own training and with the athletes I coach that if I'm, let's say I'm giving them threshold work and they do it on the flats and then they do it on a climb, they can put out higher wattage on a climb to the point that I would always have to give my athletes power wise to threshold range. So it'd be same heart rate, but power wise, give them two ranges, one for climbing, one for the flats. And there are studies on it, and I can certainly bring some of that up. And I was convinced five, 10 years ago that, okay, there's just biomechanical differences. But here's why I'm re-raising the question. I see the same thing on Zwift, both with my athletes and with myself, 
where if you're doing a climb on Zwift, you can put out more power. If you're doing thresholds on the flats on Zwift, you can't put out quite as much. But physiologically, biomechanically, there is nothing different. The only thing that's different is what's on your screen. You're still sitting on a trainer in the exact same position. So it's led me to believe maybe there's something mental here too, or maybe it's all mental. Before we get to the <laughs> mental side and we let Grant be all mental, you know, I do think, Trevor, that there is there are some physical differences, right? If we look at this on the trainer, granted your position isn't changing, meaning you're not changing your torso angle, you're not changing your relative application of force in regard to the normalized force direction and vectors, so on and so forth. But how the trainer itself, because when we talk about Zwift, we're talking about smart trainers, how the trainer itself responds, especially if you're not in erg mode and you're able to shift, right? That is changing between flats and between climbing. And so I think that that difference does carry over from the real world. And for me, I do think because I'm, I'm a hard science, not a soft science guy like Grant, I'm a hard science guy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I do think that the physics of this are, are still different when you think about inertia and the application of power through the pedals, the impulse, how much power is being applied for how long, you know, with the constant need for reacceleration and any type of inclined cycling I think that that stuff does carry over still from Zwift. Now, if you take this and put it in erg mode, maybe that's a different thing, but you're raising a finger. So what counterpoint would you like to make? So this is an N of one, which is always dangerous. No, oh, it's the most dangerous. But my- Especially if you're the N, then it's actually, whatever Trevor says, flip it around backward and that applies <laughs> to everyone else. <laughs> my first four years on Zwift, I was on a dumb trainer. Dumb, 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 dumb. So Zwift couldn't control it. So I thought the same thing. Maybe Zwift- is controlling the or the the control of the trainer adding that resistance is is simulating what you have on a climb or in the flats the trainer isn't providing as much resistance but i was experiencing this on a dumb trainer where zwift couldn't control it yeah but for i'm going fine i'm going mental on this one and your your whole psyche trevor is about overcoming adversity and when you're going up a hill, it's an adverse opponent. And so you're doubling down, my man. You're so doubling that goes, down. That goes to the mental side. So maybe this is more mental than, yeah. than biomechanical. Grant, would you like to therapize Trevor? Oh, I don't have the time, the energy, the effort, the uh, Trevor doesn't have the That's money. Wow. Yeah. That might be That's the worst insult I've gotten in a while. <laughs> What's the worst insult you could get is, is going to a therapist and having therapists say, I can't help you. Yeah, not that you don't have a problem. I can't help, help you. you. <laughs> it's like, I am a professional at this. I am trained. You're beyond my skill set. Right. Well, you know, I will say this, that if you really, really wanted to put the time and the effort into it, I would I would take on the test case for, for no no doubt at all. But I back to the question at hand, not Trevor's psyche, I will say that I think there is hard science to this in that there's a lot to be said about riding in the small ring versus riding in the big ring. The difference that that creates for athletes with with torque and with, with how the power distribution goes, and and I'm sure that some of that's covered in the studies that that Trevor's alluding to, and I think we can get into that. But one of the things that I will say is that probably for the past ten years, I have really been adamant with my athletes that we're not going to do our intervals on climbs anymore. That maybe we're going to do some intervals on climbs late in a set, and we've always just referred to it as free watts. And, you know, separate from Trevor's discussion, because I've experienced this and, and I certainly have been in a place where I watch the screen go uphill and I find myself riding harder. Even when I'm in erg mode, I'm pushing the top end of the zone, right? And it's that idea of like, you know, what you're seeing on the screen, your mind believes. And so it's going to do. And so you see that and you put a little bit more effort in, you put a little more time in it. There's, there's no doubt about that. But we've really moved towards this idea of we're going to do these on the flats or at least the moderate inclines of the, some of the roads out here like Neva and Nelson and Hygiene and St. Vrain because it forces this idea of you have to be the one that creates the power. The other thing that I'm really adamant about, and this is true of the cyclocross athletes, but 
all the athletes is that that ability to push a really, really big gear at a really, really high cadence is important. And I think we lose that when we're doing all our intervals on climbs. So while there is some hard science to it, I am at the point now, Trevor, believe it or not, that I feel more comfortable laying down power on a flat or a one or 2% grade than I do on four to 8% grade. Now, when I get above 8%, more like 10, 12, something along those lines, yeah, no problem. I, I, my carcass, I'm just dragging a large carcass up that hill and you have to put the effort into that. And so the watts come out the other side. But if I'm gonna go do an interval, a 2% grade is my ideal. A five, six, 7% grade for me is miserable. And part of that is I'm in the small ring, but part of that's just what I'm comfortable with. Anybody who has been in a climbing race, uh, well, I shouldn't say anybody, but I have heard many people say this. I've had this experience, which is the worst climbs are those steady five, 6% climbs. Yeah, they're hard, yeah. You can just never really find that rhythm. They're just a struggle. So let me throw a little bit of the science uh, at you guys. Because like I said, I was fascinated by this. So I tried to find any study I could. And, and there weren't many, but I found a, a few. And the theory here is that because you're going up a hill, gravity is providing resistance. So there is resistance throughout the pedal stroke. Where when you're on the flats... There are certain points in the pedal strokes, particularly as you come into that down the, the bottom part of your stroke, where momentum's going to keep you going. So there really isn't any resistance. And you literally kind of take these little micro breaks where you're not putting out any power. And this was demonstrated in a study where they showed on a climb, the power phase of the stroke was a little longer. It started sooner, it ended later. So that's where you're getting that, that little more power. So here I'm going to throw a theory out to you guys that doesn't go too deep into the recesses of my brain, so don't get too scared. What about this? What about there is something biomechanical here, and we've all intuitively or, or just directly, as I have, have seen this, where, hey, I can put out more power on a climb and have learned that. And so when we get on Zwift, well, there's no change, particularly, as I said, if you're in erg mode or on a dumb trainer like me, there's a placebo effect. We have just learned that we can put out more power on a climb. So when we see the climb on Zwift, we just go harder. Yeah, Trevor, I think that that is, you know, along the lines of what I was saying previously about the mechanical side of things, I do think that a placebo effect exists, right? And we know that if we lie to athletes and we tell them they're going you know, a different workload than they are. We tell them their core temperature is different than it is. Then you can extract that additional performance. And so that link between the mental, the soft side of things and the hard science side of things, I'm saying this just to get a rise out of Grant, everybody, just so the listeners so that you know, I can see Grant's face. <laughs> um, and I love the micro expressions that Grant has. So yeah, I do think that that interconnection is is super important. And because I think it's super important, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm going to let Grant do it. Well, <laughs> my, my micro expressions aren't very micro sometimes. Um, but I will say that, again, coming back to the, the biomechanical piece, one of the things that you're pointing out, Trevor, that I think is really important to this is the pedal economy. If you're forced to have a longer power zone in on a climbing scenario, then, all right, some of that inefficiency in the pedal stroke is of corrected for. You have to lay down power through some of those places where normally on a flat, you would not be forced, you can rely on momentum. This is why track cyclists are so phenomenal with their pedal stroke and so phenomenal when they translate to the road because they're so unbelievably economical in their pedal stroke because they have to be. And it's one of the reasons why, as a coach, I'm a huge believer in high cadence work and low cadence work and really forcing this stuff in a lot of different ways because it fills in those gaps that the climb allows you to cheat on. But from, from a placebo effect, yeah, I alluded to it earlier. I absolutely find myself when I'm in those scenarios on, on Zwift. And it's a problem in erg mode. 
You know, I've watched this for years when we've done, when we had the CompuTrainer studio at Apex with Neil and all of these elements of the puzzle, like you watch people ramp up their cadence and ramp up their effort as they're coming into a climb or as they're coming into a, an interval piece. And it actually forces the trainer to go the other way because their cadence is so high, the trainer's releasing resistance on it and they get into this upward spiral that they're going higher cadence trying to find this effort and find this power and the trainer keeps going whoa 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 because it's cadence combined with resistance the same thing you see when people get overloaded on the other direction with erg mode when they go lower cadence and the resistance comes on and they get bogged down so there there absolutely is a placebo effect on this and and one of the one study I'll throw out there that's that's beautiful it's it's it parallels this is they did a study on athletes climbing in the draft, so to speak, behind a teammate. And they found that climbing behind a teammate offered this benefit. Climbing behind an opponent offered zero benefit and that the, the aerodynamics were negligible. So there's this idea that we see in the tour all the time, people talking about having a teammate there, having a teammate there. But again, we're over 10%. How much aerodynamics are at play here? And the answer is none. It's a mental component of what's going on in this strength that you're drawing from riding on your teammate's wheel. So all of this stuff is at play in everything we do. And this is just another great example of a way to go, hey, man, like this soft science, this this mental performance piece, just it, it kind of just creeps into everything that we do in the cracks between the granite, so to speak. Yeah, my wife and I have been watching the tour together in, in the evenings and in this tour oftentimes and in the last tour, it's oftentimes Tade sitting on the wheel of Jonas who's sitting on the wheel of Sep. And the uh, commentators are constantly saying that, you know, Jonas has a teammate, he has that benefit. And, and you know, my wife looked at me a day or two ago and said, you know, what, what does it matter who you're following and, and I said, in some regard, it's a great question. Actually, I didn't say in some regard. It is a great question. <laughs> and it, it has everything to do with if you have an ally, then you can rely and you can trust. And in some regard, you can relax. Or at the very least, you can focus on things that are higher priority. If you're following an enemy of combatant, then your senses are always turned up. Mentally, you're doing a heck of a lot more math. You're trying to figure things out, your strategy. Are they going to attack? How do I make the best of this situation? And that is all very fatiguing and that can affect your physical fatigue, your physical performance as well. I feel like we should have had an alarm and like lights and everything go on because Grant quoted a study. <laughs> <laughs> it was a first and I just want to recognize that. <laughs> it was a qualitative study. Does that is that different than it was quoting still peer-reviewed research? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have a lot of peer-reviewed research. Let's not get into that. It's just all qualitative and soft. 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 Grant, you're so soft. Mm. The other thing I have to call out here is in our parking lot. We have, I think they're gone now, but we have this woman on a very nice bike with a videographer with a very nice camera filming her. And I don't know either of them, but they're in our parking lot. One of them wasn't Bryce, the videographer? It was not Bryce. And I feel like, I admit this was my question. I should be paying attention, but I missed half of this conversation because I was thinking, I want to go get Bryce. I want Rob and I to go grab our bikes go out there and like have a West Side <laughs> Story <laughs> throw down. <laughs> Ryan's doing some testing. I wonder if he's testing someone important or someone who's paying a videographer to be with her. I guess I guess Fast Talk is just the hub of, of endurance sports in Boulder. Hey man, somebody needed to come fill that gap of uh, Boulder Center for Sports Medicine and CU Sports Med. So like and now it's, it's Fast Talk, right? Our parking lot. And it's our parking Not lot. Not our building our parking lot. <laughs> nice. All right. All right. Good to know. Hey, Fast Talk listeners. This is Rob Pickles. Wouldn't it be cool to decide what Trevor and I are going to talk about on an upcoming show? Or how about we answer a question on polarized training you've been dying to know? What about a 30-minute Zoom call with me or Trevor on your favorite sports endurance topic? This is all possible when you become a Fast Talk Patreon member. 
we have four monthly memberships to fit your level of support. If you enjoy Fast Talk, help us stay independent and dishing out your favorite sports science topics by becoming a Fast Talk Patreon member today at patreon.com slash Podcast. All right, Rob, you got a question for us? I do have a question. It's, it's on the coaching side of things, and it's this. Every athlete has something. Every athlete has a negative notion that unduly affects their psyche and their performance. So, for example, performance in the heat, it's probably not as good as performance in cool weather, right? We can objectively measure that. We know that that is the case. But some athletes say, oh, the heat, I can't possibly perform well in the heat. And they lose more than what they should because of this mindset. Or, oh, I've never won a muddy cyclocross race. I can't possibly do a climb on the third Tuesday after the first full moon of the month. How do you work with individuals to help them get over this negative connotation that they have, knowing that, yeah, hey, you have a very real and valid thought. It's hard to ride or run fast in the heat, but it shouldn't affect you in an outsized manner. I actually really like this question. I, I, I was thinking about it after you sent it. I had a couple directions, and one of them, the first one, is practice. You have to practice. If you're going to do a race in the heat, you got to spend time in the heat. So the, the personal example I will give you is I trained for years up in Victoria, British Columbia, where it rains yeah. 250 days a year. Not hot. Not hot, but I'm going to go, go with the rain <laughs> example here. You trained every day in the rain. It's just part of what you did. You got used to, you had fenders that went to the ground. Otherwise, you didn't go on the rides. And I remember when I moved to Colorado... If we were doing a race and it was raining, I would just like, Whoa. It's, it's the opposite. Yeah. I knew I was going to drop 80% of the riders in that race, not with strength, mm -hmm. but because they'd get scared to death in the corners because you just don't ride and race in the rain in Colorado mm -hmm. that often. And I was a Victoria rider. This was just normal for me. 10 years later... I am the Colorado rider. I don't ride in the rain. I don't race in the rain. So when we have those rainy days, I take the corners like a three-year-old. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So you got to practice. You got Some of the comfort is just knowing you can do it because you have done it. Sure. Grant, what are your thoughts? I think some of the things that are really important here is there's, there's two pieces of this puzzle for me. One is reframing and how important it is to reframe some of these things. And, and well, I'll come back to that. But one of the things that, that I really like to do is, and, and this is going to come out wrong, and it's going to come out maybe a little bit harsh, but we have to look at some of those things and realize that they're slightly irrational fears. They're slightly irrational concerns. And what I mean by that is it's a little bit to what the point you're saying, Rob, that, okay, riding in the heat, yes, there's a detriment, but what is that percentage of detriment? It's usually smaller than what we think it is. And the limits of ourselves, they're not as intense as maybe we see them. So what we have to do is look at actual logical facts that allow us to go out and refute some of this information, right? So I'm going to do it again. Sorry, Trevor. There's another great study. This is just the upside down world. <laughs> <laughs> this is Montana Grant, not Colorado Grant. Grant, can you stop quoting studies? Can we talk about how you feel? <laughs> <laughs> feel strongly that this study is really important, that what they did is they actually did work with depressives and they took a couple of angles on this. One of them was to have people tell themselves positive thoughts all the time. I'm really good. This is okay. I'm in a good mood. Da -da 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 -da. The problem with that was when something happened and that person who was depressed was telling themselves the stuff they didn't necessarily believe, they flipped on a dime 180 degrees the other way and said, see, I knew nothing was going right for me. But what they did with another group of people is they asked them to really embellish and celebrate any moment that felt good, anything that felt like it was a positive and really buy into that. And when things started to go sideways for them, they asked them to double down on those thoughts about that really small element of good. 
And I put this into practice with a swimmer years ago. We were going to a, a junior national championships and they'd never been. They, it was one of these swimmers that developed super fast and all of a sudden they found themselves at nationals and they didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't believe they belonged there. They had a little imposter syndrome. They had some of these other things going on. And so what I did is I asked this athlete, you, you got to hold on to something that you really, really believe in. And they came into practice the next day and they're like, coach, I got this. And I'm like, that was a 180 degree shift. What the heck happened? And they said, well, when you made junior nationals in swimming, you got all this free gear. And they went home and they put on all the free gear. So they had on their suit, their cap, their goggles, their sweatsuit. And they said, I was standing in front of the mirror and I was bucking at the mirror. Like I was telling the mirror to come get me. And I felt so strong and empowered by the end of that, that I, I've just totally got this. That's what I'm going to hold on to. Nothing was real. They thought they looked really cool in all their gear. It can be something that simple. It can be something that it may seem silly ultimately that it's not a big deal, but we have to have that actual evidence of fact that we can hold on to and come back to. So I think that's one piece of that puzzle is, you know, oh, I'm not good in the heat. Well, here is this workout, and this comes in, it ties in a little bit to what Trevor is saying, is you have that practice in the heat. Now I can look back at that day where I practiced in the heat and I was successful. Really hold on to that, and that's the thing that teaches me that I can be good in the heat and I can be successful in the heat, and that's what I remember. The other thing is that piece of reframing that I was bringing up, and this is that piece that, that Trevor's doing when he wakes up in the morning and he sees it's raining, Old Trevor would go, oh, that's awful. I don't want to ride in the rain, but this is a huge advantage to me. How do you take one situation, flip it, reframe it, and how does it make it good for you? And I remember the, the wonderful Max Chance once said to me, Grant, coaching's easy. I watch you do it all the time. All you got to do is walk up to your athletes at the beginning of a cross race and go, this course is perfect for you. And this is why this course is perfect for you. And you ramble off all the reasons this course is perfect for that person. He goes, I got this. I got coaching. It's a piece of cake. I said, Max, the struggle is finding that piece of the course that actually is perfect for that person and harping on that and getting them to believe that that is an advantage for them. That's what coaching is. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, I can't do that. So I'm yeah. out. <laughs> but, but I do think there's that element of how do we reframe the tough and make it, this is an advantage to me. This race is long, but you know, I have endurance. Maybe I don't have the pop, but I have the endurance, things like that. All right, Grant, enough of your silly science. I want to get back to the humanistic side of this. <laughs> I, I will say, you know, Grant, I can't believe that we're going full circle back to Coach Prime. I didn't really think that that was ultimately relevant to this conversation, <laughs> but it turns out it was because during that, you pointed out that he is creating a system of belief, right? And I think that that true, honest belief, as you're bringing up now, that's ultimately what's important. And I think that a lot of athletes, they might recognize, oh, I have this outsized fear of the heat. And I'll just keep using the heat as an example. Maybe they recognize it internally. Maybe their coach recognizes it. But I think that oftentimes their coping strategy is a fake it until you make it strategy. And I don't know that they truly believe, but they begin telling themselves, I'm good in the heat. They recite like a, a mantra, you know, the heat can't get me or, or whatever else. And, and I think that that works if you truly deep down inside of you believe it. But if it's a very superficial thing that you don't believe that you ultimately know you're just telling yourself in the hope that you believe, like you said, Grant, the moment something goes wrong, that immediate flip. I knew, I knew it wasn't for me. I knew I had to race in the cold. And so, yeah, this is super, super interesting, Grant. And I love how you're thinking about bringing that solid, true belief, pure belief to an individual. Well, I think both of you are also touching on something really important, which is I think sometimes these issues like heat or rain or the cold, it's not the issue itself that scares the athlete. Sometimes, as you said, you might have athletes that are just nervous and they're looking for something to be nervous about. And the best example I've ever seen of this was a cross cyclist I was coaching 
who lived in Vermont, who went down to nationals in January in California. So he'd been training for two months in the snow and flipped out the night before nationals because it snowed in California. Mm-hmm. And he goes, what do I do? And I go, thank whoever up there did this to you because you're raising a bunch of Californians who are wondering what this white stuff is on the ground. <laughs> yeah. But he just, he was nervous about the race and it wasn't thinking, oh, well, I know snow. He was thinking, oh no, something went wrong. And was it just became that expression of, of what he was scared of. I don't know what to do right now. Grant's bringing the science. Trevor's bringing the insight. I need to go get practice. How do you feel, Rob? How do I, I feel Talk really- to me about how I you feel. I feel pretty scared at the moment. <laughs> I don't really, I don't know what to do with this. Rob, but you can handle it. No, tra- I can't. You, you can handle it. I can't. Okay, back on track, Trevor. Um, <laughs> if only I were next to you, I could hold you. You could, in fact, and you'd be soft while you did it. <laughs> I think Trevor makes a great point. Wow, we are in the upside down world. (laughs) This is where it is crucial that people have the people around them for support that are able to say, hey, remember this. And that's that personal mental skill that you can have that is, how do I bring myself back to the moment? We talked about this at length in a previous podcast is being in the moment is what's so important. What I think people are really, really getting nervous about is the result. They're living in the future. So if this is going on, I'm worried that my result is going to fail. And so because they're worried about that result, they're not able to put in the effort. They're not able to put in the the power. They're not able to put in those pieces maybe 30 minutes in because they're worried about what's going to happen three hours down the road. And all you can do is, and and I'd say this to athletes over and over and over again, Come up with a plan, make sure the plan works for you, and then put the maximum effort into that plan that you can possibly put into. Damn the result. Getting to that point that near the end, it it doesn't matter what the result is. It matters what your, your effort has been. And one thing I'll say here, and I'll bring this back to Prime, is that is something that's being put out there. And I don't think that we can underestimate the power it has for some of these young athletes to be coached by somebody who they feel like is like them. He looks like them. He thinks like them. He understands them. And we've seen this over and over in college sports, that you have an old white guy like me trying to coach underprivileged kids or kids from a rough socioeconomic background or kids that just don't, they don't understand these kids' cultures at all. And they're trying to coach them. And I think this is absolutely crucial for coaches now to look at their athletes and under try to really, really hard to understand what is fashion, what is style, and what is culture and separate that from work ethic. And I'm sorry, I got on a high horse there and I went a little off the reservation, but I think that connection is crucial. And even the thing that you're talking about here, Rob, with this That connection is crucial because you have to have an athlete believe you when you're saying, hey, here's some facts that you can go to refute this concern that you have. They have to have that trust and belief that you know them and that you can integrate that into what you're doing with them. Grant, it's good you went on your high horse there because Rob just went, ah, we're back to back to normal. I (laughs) I get it. God, that felt so good (laughs) to listen to you. My man. Research says. (laughs) Research says Grant Hollick is the man. (laughs) That's what research says. I'm going to throw out two other quick tactics for dealing with these things. And this kind of follows from what Grant was saying earlier. One is when athletes are getting nervous about this sort of stuff, something I like to have them do is create a list of what they control and what they don't control. You don't control the heat. You do control your hydration. So focus on that. The reason this is important, you talked about the results, Grant, something that always goes on the list of what you don't control is results. You control your performance, you don't control the result. Mm -hmm. So it's an important thing to always remember because that's something not to get nervous about. You don't control it. Another thing that sometimes helps, particularly, for example, now when I go in a race in the rain, I'm not using it as a surrogate for something else I'm nervous about. I'm just nervous about crashing in the rain. Mm -hmm. So something that can help is sometimes to just go make make a list or think about, What's the worst that can happen? So, for example, you're going to a vent and it's in the heat. What's the worst that can happen? Well, you don't take care of your hydration. You start to go into to heat stress. You pull out of the race. You get in the, the, the follow vehicle and, and unfortunately you don't finish, but you probably paid $50 for the event. 
It was still probably fun. You had an experience. You would have been spending the day sitting on the couch watching TV if you hadn't done this. It's just not that big a deal. Yeah, and I and and to to come off of that, I think that you know another way to look at it is that this isn't the biggest and endpoint moment. You know, maybe there are there going to be those races where somebody's doing the Olympics and they know they're going to retire after the Olympics, so they're doing their last road race and they know they're going to retire after this road race. But 99.9% of the time, this is just a waypoint on the journey towards our endpoint. And what can we learn from it? What can we take from it? And I think you make a great point, Trevor, in that so many people get into these things and they're caught up in the result and it's a failure. Well, it's a failure. God, I'm going to beat myself up over this failure instead of understanding that, man, okay, yeah, I failed at that. What did I learn? How do I make it better? The next time I'm going to go out, I have more information. I have more tactics. I have more tools to go out into this thing and be better and move forward. And I will say the one last thing I'm going to say about all this, this entire episode is I feel and I'm very proud and I have this warm glow in my heart. I feel like I'm rubbing off a little bit. (laughs) And that just makes me feel warm inside and fuzzy and just such an American-Canadian moment of coming together. It's just fantastic. Stay up in Montana. As a matter of fact, go further north. Go just a little (laughs) further north. (laughs) Maybe we can rub off. So remember, you are way up in a northern state. If you go further north, you're in one of the most southern parts of my country. Yeah, America's hat. I know, I know. Let's never forget it. It's just hands across the Niagara Falls is what we were when we were young. Yeah. Dude, we were right there. We were so close. I was in Niagara Falls three weeks ago, and I forgot to stop at the gift shop and buy something really cheesy. <laughs> you were in the tropics of Canada. I was. And I was in the great white north of the United States. Yeah. There we go. I do have one addendum to my what's the worst that can happen scenario. <laughs> yeah, there are. <laughs> there are certain addendums. If you are listening to this and you are a skydiver and you are worried about your parachute not opening, it, it do might not, not open. make Don't the <laughs> what is the worst that can happen Don't list. Go. This is not going to help you. <laughs> you should be nervous about your parachute not opening. <laughs> Get off the plane. <laughs> well, guys, I think that this was another episode of Fast Talk. Keep going, Rob. Don't stop now. I love that Rob doesn't even bring his computer, his tablet, anything to the potluck, so he can't even read the outro now. I'm rubbing off on everybody. I'm rubbing off on everybody. (sighs) That was another episode of Fast Talk. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this episode are not worthwhile for anybody to listen to and definitely belong to Trevor and Grant, respectively, because all of my thoughts were terrific. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. There's that voice again. Be sure to check us out on the forums. And for Grant Holicky and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. That was surprisingly okay. Yeah, it worked. You didn't mention any of our, our what's our Twitter handle? What's our if people? Fa- if people don't know it by now, come on, me telling them again, it doesn't matter. Just they go don't to freaking know, Twitter, people. Anybody is even listening at this point. Do you think anybody listens to that outro? I hate to say it. Every time I record it, I do wonder if anybody listens to it. So let us know. In fact, forget the rest of the episode. If you can still hear us, <laughs> tweet at us at, at Fast Talk Labs because you might not actually know what it See, is. See, if I was a mean person, this is the point where I'd be like making fun of our listeners because I know that nobody's going to hear this, but I'm just not that person. Are you though? Oh boy. What's that look? <laughs> Anybody who's still listening to this, kudos to you. We appreciate you. You Thank you so much. You should have given up a long time ago, but you have grit. This is like the Marvel movie where you go through the whole end credits to get that little thing. (laughs) The one nugget. And it's not there. I'm sorry. We gave you nothing. (laughs)